This podcast is brought to you by the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Many refugees who still don't have the right to work are feeling the impacts of the cost of living crisis, leaving them unable to put food on the table for their families, let alone afford rent, healthcare and other essentials. Give to ASRC's end of year appeal and help shine a lot of hope for refugees and people seeking asylum this festive season. Donate today at asrc.org.au slash donate. Hello and welcome to The Crocs, the weekly women's agenda podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk's resignation this week. We'll also discuss the pro-aging movement for women in Hollywood, plus an interview with human rights lawyer Prabha Nandagopal on the positive duty changes by the Australian Human Rights Commission. Thank you for listening. We are recording this episode of The Crux on the 13th of December, 2023. My name is Angela Priestley, joining you from Gadigal Land. And today I am joined by Women's Agenda journalist, Olivia Cleal. Hello, Liv. How are you? Hey, Ange. I'm well. How are you going? Good. Good. Thank you. And your first, not your first time, your second time on the podcast, but your first time <laughs> co-hosting with me. So thank you for doing this and putting up with me for the next 20 minutes or so. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited. Thanks for having me. So first up, we always like to start with a win. What is your win this week? So my win this week is a story that I reported on earlier in the week. It was about a man who went viral on TikTok for his take on dating. And it may not be what you immediately assume. The video sharing platform is usually, in my opinion, filled with men and and women as well, telling keen listeners what men should look for women on a first date, how they should present themselves, what they should or shouldn't say. But Dylan Barnett from Queensland had a different take. In his video, Barnett paints a picture of the reality, which is many women have been affected by violence in their lifetime. In his viral TikTok video, he says, you know, what really shocked me about being back in the dating world, every second woman I have met has been physically abused before. Every second woman I have met has been sexually abused before. And every second woman I have met has been on a date where they were expected to do a sexual act and it resulted against, it resulted in aggression towards them. He followed this by saying that he actually had no idea this was going on and he says that it was a failure between most men in the dating world. When I watched the video, my first initial thoughts was, although it is disappointing that Barnett didn't have any idea how common it is for women to be victim survivors of abuse by an intimate partner, I thought that it's about time we hear a man tell this truth. Mm. Um, And I also want to add, I know he's not the first man to tell this truth. And there are also many male advocates in this space doing amazing work. But I just think it was really great hearing a man say, you know, look, I admit it, I had no idea this was happening. Perhaps I'm part of the problem. Um, He's just acknowledging that there is something wrong with how domestic violence and intimate partner violence is addressed and spoken about in the country. Mm, yeah, I know it was really powerful and really good to see. And a great, I just, I loved your story as well on it. So thank you. Thanks. So my one is Taylor Swift, who was named Time Person of the Year. And I know it's been a few days since this happened, and we we will have, we did touch on it last week in our reporting and coverage. 
I'm saying as a win now because I I didn't really get it at first. Um, So the person who is chosen as time person of the year each year, they're usually sort of representative of the influence they've had on the news within the past year. And that can be in both positive and negative ways. So there's been this real sort of collection of people over history who have been named time person of the year. And I saw, I just, at first I saw Taylor Swift and just, it's sat weirdly with me compared to some of the other sort of finalists on the list and I was looking I was like I know she's obviously insanely popular but you know, how does she represent how the news impacts 8 billion people and you know and looking at previous years as well last year it was um, Zelensky who was named time person of the year so he was selected you know nine months after Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2021 it was Elon Musk he was selected uh, with the judges highlighting how with a flick of the finger the stock market soars or swoons with Elon Musk and obviously things have also changed since then but anyway Taylor Swift I was like I've I've since heard some really great explanations and one was from the magazine's own editor-in-chief who simply said that they decided to pick a choice that represents joy and someone who was bringing light to the world and I was like yeah that seems fair enough and and why not and but also that and this wasn't from the the editor but just the thought of it is how she represents this collective economic power and influence of girls and young women and how her tour like actually lifts local economies and you know when she comes to town everything changes and there is that sort of sense of joy but there's also this economic impact as well and I just I think that was yeah in that sense a good choice and maybe it's not just about her as an individual but maybe what she represents we might point to the Matildas here we might point to you know women's sport generally we might look at the Barbie uh, franchise and everything that's happened with that movie and what that's done and just this sort of this cultural moment that saw this power of of women and particularly young women and girls as well so that was sort of my win a reflection on Time's person of the year announcement from last week. She's just like the biggest thing ever at the moment and I'm so here for it. Certified Swifty over here. Um, <laughs> I'm not much of a Swifty and maybe it's because I'm a little bit older than you but uh, <laughs> I, I know plenty of friends who are and um, I don't dislike her. I don't know. I will listen to her music but, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's a different feeling for me but still I appreciate everything that she is doing. It's pretty awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on to our first story for the day. Over the weekend, Queensland's Premier Anastasia Palaget announced her retirement from politics and that she would officially leave office in the next week. Palaget served as the Premier of Queensland for nine years. She was labelled as the accidental Premier. She took office in 2015 and was the first woman elected from the opposition and just the second female Premier of Queensland. In her time in power, Palaget was also the first state leader to appoint a majority female cabinet and she will leave as one of the few COVID-19 pandemic leaders still in power. Although she has had her fair share of controversy, she was definitely a trailblazer for women in politics. And you wrote a piece this week about Palaget. What did you think when you first saw the story break? I think, I mean, I wasn't surprised. So I think it's been clear for a few months that Palaget would be quitting politics soon. And if she wasn't going to quit, she would have been pushed out. And, you know, maybe she was pushed out here. But I felt like you know, the fact that the resignation had happened on a Sunday was quite an unassuming time. I felt like she kind of did surprise us at that time and that she really owned that resignation. Um, yeah. She was likely facing a lot of pressure, but she she seemed to make that announcement on her own terms. And I think that was really good to see. 
And I like that it happened before, you know, the break of the Christmas period. And it means that, you know, 2024 will start with a new premiere. She kind of took back some kind of ownership over that resignation. I know a lot of people, other people are saying that as well, who've been been following this and, and follow Queensland politics more intimately than I do. And I always think, I don't like, you know I, know, I know the accidental premiere thing that she gets. And I think it's kind of weird because she's actually a very capable premiere. And she, obviously there's con- controversies there and, um, there's issues, but you know there was nine years in power, and as we've seen with every other premier, and um, particularly in New South Wales, you see how uh, lengthy since in power—not even lengthy since power, just any amount of time in power—leads to issues coming up, as we've seen. You know, she did win three elections. That first election, she won after the Labor Party just three years early had been absolutely decimated to just seven seats and that's when she took leader of the opposition power and then she comes in and wins the next election and then she wins another election and then she wins another election and ends up with like 52 seats or something and for for Queenslanders during COVID she obviously was like popular in her response to that she may have been less popular amongst people in other states that is very much what was happening during COVID that certain popularity of premiers somewhere did not align with how other people felt about them but I think like there's so many great first and records that she achieved there you mentioned there becoming the second female premier of queensland so after anna bligh first woman re-elected she led the first majority women cabinet in australia you know and she was one of the last standing just one of two of the state and territory leaders who had served during covid at some point and during the pandemic so and had some good policy wins you know and um legalizing abortion um legalizing voluntary assisted dying um other not so great wins but still you know, I think that that was, she left a really important legacy and you see all the headlines described as rise and fall and various other things. But, you know, I also think that, that it's a little sad that we've come to the end of the year and we don't have any female state leaders. We do have the Northern Territories Chief Minister, Natasha Files, but but no uh, state premiers as we, as we end 2023. It's a bit of a shame, but just thinking about the note that you made about mm. the pandemic leaders, like I, I think generally we're going through a period in politics where there's just such a high turnover or there has been such a high turnover of leaders. Mm. And the fact that she was in power for nine years, you know, through a pandemic, through a range of other issues that, you know, we've faced over the years, I think that just goes to show how, you know, despite the controversy, despite the rise and fall, she was well respected and Mm. people respected her leadership to the Mm. point where she was able to you know, maintain that leadership position for nine years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and you know what, and I always make this point, but when people resign, I just think it's a good thing. <laughs> it's like <laughs> resign before you're pushed out. And um, and I know that you wrote a story a few weeks back talking about how, and even I think as of like two weeks ago, she was saying, no, I'm definitely here for the next election. And yeah. um, she'd return from holidays and like, I'm feeling energetic. I'm good. I'm going to be here for the next election. And it would be easy to have a go at her for saying that a few weeks ago and then saying this. But I also think that, you know, people can change their mind and, that circumstances change. And I don't think we should ever bemoan that or demonise that or something because we want people to be able to change their mind. I think it's important to be able to evolve. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So should we talk about Pamela Anderson? <laughs> Sorry, why yes. not? I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking for a segue. I'm not sure I see it. But um, 
We wanted to talk about Pamela Anderson because we've shared a bit of content on her this week. Um, and it came from various reports that were celebrating former Hollywood A-listers going grey and showing off their faces without makeup. Oh, my God, can you imagine? <laughs> so, the horror. And, I know, there has, and that's sort of become this cat for those of us who, you know, I think wish to believe the world is uh, becoming a less horrible place for women. And this is just one of those little beacons of light that we've seen. Um, I think it's still, you know, crazy that it still makes news that a you know a well-known woman would uh appear at a celebrity event or something with without makeup or with her hair gray or you know just being herself and not feeling the need to to in, in engage in the anti-aging what would it be anti-aging market or the you know try and look youthful forever market which is worth you know billions and billions and billions of dollars but um when we look at the pro-aging movement, it's sort of been there for men the whole time. <laughs> like it's like, yeah, you know, how like we, we look at George Clooney, he gets his grey streaks, Steve Carell and like various other men like that and they become like the foxes and like, you know, the yeah. silver foxes. But we haven't been able to have that for women as yet, but we should. And so we're looking at this from Pamela Anders' point of view. And I might just add another story that we actually published that was, you know, published very much separately to this piece, but I thought it was interesting as well. And this one was from Leanne Kutcher from the University of Sydney who shared a piece asking from her point of view, and she, she says her age, that she's 62, and she's like, why do people keep asking when I'm going to retire? And how is this like a thing that we ask women when they're going to retire? And she asks if men get the same thing. She asks if it's because, you know, she had stopped dyeing her hair during COVID as a lot of women did at that time. And, you know, she wonders if, if she was still dying her hair, would she still be getting, if she was indulging more in that massive market for anti-aging, that if, if she would be asked it less. But, you know, her, her call is basically to just, you know, quit asking the question. Everyone's circumstances are different and she loves her work. She's also acknowledging the, um, the, the fact that women often do need to keep working longer, but also that women just really enter the prime of their careers as well, often around that age. So what did you make of this story? Yeah, when I saw Jessie to write this story, it made me think of a conversation that I had with friends like literally this week. Mm. We were talking about ageing and one of my friends said, ageing is a privilege, so we should embrace that. But someone else in the conversation piped up and said, well, also getting Botox is a privilege, getting plastic surgery is a privilege as well. What came from that conversation that we had was, kind of, it, it makes me think of like Taryn Brumfit, the Australian of the year, what she says, my body, my rules, your body, your rules. We shouldn't judge women for going one way or the other. In terms of the particular context of Hollywood celebrities, I still find it weird that, as you said earlier, and that the fact that this is a new story is still astounding to me. You mm. know, as you said, we don't see the same stories about George Clooney. We don't see the same stories about Steve Carell, mm. the Silver Foxes of Hollywood. So... I kind of have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, that we that we need to still celebrate and write stories about it. But then, I mean, we do. <laughs> of course, yeah. Of course we have to celebrate then, it because yeah. it... No, but I get what you mean. It's like should we, that we shouldn't need to celebrate it because yeah. also just celebrating it make it look more like it's abnormal or something. I, yeah. I think celebrating it is a reflection on the fact that beauty standards have been held against celebrities or people in the public eye for so long. And finally, these celebrities and just a note as well they're white thin able-bodied women mm -hmm. they're able to break out of those of those boundaries and break away from that so I think of course it should be celebrated because of those historical standards that have been held to women in in the public eye 
for so long, but it should be so it certainly should be normalized for for everyone and that's the thing it should be normalized in the sense that if you, you don't also you also don't have to go make up for it you also don't have yeah. to let you like it, it's it's a personal choice and maybe the privilege is in having the choice you're right mm. yeah so our next story i think you will introduce this one but it yeah. relates to an interview that i did yesterday yes so Tuesday, the Australian Human Rights Commission's new framework came into force and it was requiring employers to have a positive duty in preventing unlawful conduct in the workplace. The concept of positive duty laid out in the Sex Discrimination Act 1984 refers to employers or persons conducting a business or undertaking actively working to prevent unlawful conduct at work rather than responding to or managing unlawful conduct after the fact. So, and she spoke with human rights lawyer Prabha Nandagopal on Tuesday about the positive duty changes. Prabha is the founder of Elevate Consulting Partners and has directed teams and reviews at the Australian Human Rights Commission, including the legal independent review into Commonwealth parliamentary workplaces. We're going to take you to that interview now. So, Prabha, I wanted to first start by just asking how you got to the position that you're in, which is um, just really interesting, particularly the work that you've been doing. You've basically been in some of the most significant inquiries and reviews, so that's including the review into Commonwealth parliamentary workplaces. I I saw that you led the National Inquiry into Children in Detention. Uh, You consulted to the National Music Industry Review last year into sexual harm, harassment and discrimination and supported uh, Elizabeth Broderick in the cultural review of EY Oceana, also a senior legal advisor to the Respect at Work National Inquiry. So that's all a very impressive uh, lineup to, to lead you to where you are today, including starting this um, consultancy. How did you get into this work as a human rights and discrimination lawyer? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've always been interested in social justice and advocating against inequity ever since I've been a young tacker. Um, I've been a human rights lawyer for a long time. I started out in private legal practice as a litigator and then moved into the Human Rights Commission where I stayed for 12 years. And um, as you mentioned, um, it was so privileged to work on a number of those uh, really significant national inquiries and projects. Uh, I've worked at the coalface um, of immigration detention, asylum seek and refugee law and policy for many, many years. And as the years have gone by, I think coloured by my own lived experience, I've become really passionate about women's economic empowerment and independence. And of course, if you don't feel safe to go to work, this seriously impacts your ability to earn a living and live the life that you want to live. So at the Human Rights Commission, um, I was so fortunate to work on this new positive duty uh, regulation from inception through my work on the Respect at Work uh, National Inquiry all the way through to implementation, now working as a consultant with businesses to help them cultivate safe, respectful and inclusive cultures. And so this is through Elevate Consulting Partners and just launched, is that right? Like just launched last week by Julian Triggs? (laughs) Uh, we've been around a bit longer than that. I, I started consulting um, early last year and um, was so fortunate that Elizabeth Broderick uh, brought me on to work as a consultant with her company at EB and Co. And so I got to really learn the ropes about consulting with her formidable staff. Uh, and then this year I decided to um, start my own consultancy, which is Elevate Consulting um, Partners. And I brought together a multi- multidisciplinary team of incredibly talented women who I worked with 
the Australian Human Rights Commission. Um, and we did officially launch last week and the wonderful Gillian Triggs was so gracious in agreeing to uh, launch that from Geneva. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, no, that, that's, um, that was one of those uh, go into your LinkedIn profile just as yeah. we're about to interview. I was yeah, like, oh, yeah. wow, okay, well, I missed that event. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I've got so, the recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am speaking with you on the, so it's the 12th of December and today does mark a really significant day in terms of human rights and in terms of mm. sex discrimination laws in Australia. So as of today, and you've touched on this, but as of today, employers do have a positive duty obligation, so meaning they will uh, need to proactively eliminate sexual harassment and sex discrimination in the workplace uh, rather than you know, doing what they do now, which is responding to a complaint where, mm-hmm. they, where they even do that. So this is coming, and um, employers have known this has been coming, but the new research shows that across the ASX 300, mm-hmm. that directors there, they don't believe that their companies are ready. Yes. And that makes me question how smaller businesses could hope to be ready if we're talking about the ASX 300. Do you think businesses are ready? Has this caught them by surprise? Are you sensing that they're scrambling to try and get organised? I would say there are many businesses that are not ready to meet their positive duty obligations. As you said, just last week, the Australian Institute of Company Directors and AXI released research that showed that two-thirds of ASX 300 board directors did not believe that their company was fully prepared to meet the positive duty obligations. Now, that's the top end of town Mm. with significant HR and legal resources. So, you can imagine the smaller and medium businesses who don't have those types of resources, they're unlikely to be prepared as well. Yeah, that's um, I, I was just so surprised by that. Again, like you said, the big end of town, but um, mm. I thought they would have been thinking about this constantly. But uh, mm. I also note that being December, that these um, these changes come into effect around Christmas party yes. season as well, where I don't know if it's your experience. I have seen research. I've obviously seen plenty of the stories about how that can result in an uptick in um, sexual harassment, whether it's through the official parties or the unofficial parties or just everyone sort of feeling a little bit celebratory and loosening up over that period and forgetting that, you know, what they do outside of the office is still an extension of what they're doing at work. So, what is, is the timing? I don't think the timing is supposed to align with that. But is it interesting in in your regard as well? Yeah, I think it's um, it's fortuitous uh, the yeah. timing. So the legislation passed in December last year, and the idea was that businesses and organisations would have twelve months to get their house in order before the commission's monitoring and enforcement powers kick off, which is today. What will happen there? What does that mean? So if what, what will those powers look like for a business that um, I guess fails in its in this positive duty and fails to do this? So if the Australian Human Rights Commission forms a reasonable suspicion that a business is not complying with its positive duty obligations, it can conduct an inquiry. And at the first instance, its approach is to work with the business in a collaborative way and try and achieve voluntary compliance. But if this doesn't happen, they can issue a compliance notice. And if that compliance notice isn't met, then they can go to the federal court to enforce that compliance notice. And you can imagine there's huge reputational risks. Businesses do not want to end up in court for failing to provide a safe and respectful workplace. Yeah. And where does the size of a business or the definition come into this? I mean, because this is quite different to, say, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency that has, you know, its own rules about businesses of more than 100 employees needing to report on their gender pay gaps and things now. 
where does it start? So the starting point is that all businesses, regardless of their size, do have obligations under the positive duty. But the legislation says that employers must take reasonable and proportionate steps to eliminate sexual harassment. So what the Australian Human Rights Commission and the courts will be looking at is what's reasonable and proportionate for that business. And the types of things they'll take into account, for example, are the size the nature and the circumstances of the business, their resources, financial and non-financial. So it will look into all those types of factors when they are making an assessment. So what is expected of your mum and dad dry cleaner is going to be very different to what is expected from CBA. But in saying that, those who work in the mum and dad dry cleaner, Mm. are they safer from sexual harassment as of today, would you say? Or are they... Is there at least, I guess, an, an avenue for, for change for people who work in businesses like that? And I say, yeah, yeah, where those businesses may not even be aware of this. I think that's a, a key issue right now. I think the first step is to really ramp up education and awareness about the positive duty. 97% of businesses in Australia are small businesses. And when I was back at the Human Rights Commission this year to lead the development of positive duty uh, guidance material, we did create a specific resource for small businesses. So small businesses, although what might look different for them in meeting their positive duty obligations, does does not mean that they're off the hook. They still must be taking meaningful action. Mm. One of the other things that I've seen that you speak about quite a bit is the tech-facilitated sexual harassment. Um, so I wanted to ask about that. What is it, I guess, and why Why is it rising, would you say? Mm. So technology has really amplified and created additional avenues in which sexual harassment can be perpetrated. Now, post-COVID, many of us are working from home and really enjoying that work-life balance. But unfortunately, um, what we have seen is the increase of sexual harassment behaviours being transferred from those physical work environments to the online space. So recent Australian Human Rights Commission statistics show that 40% of people reported experiencing sexual harassment via the use of technology and most commonly online messaging such as, uh, you know, the Teams chats or WhatsApp, also social media and then text messages as well. I mean, I've heard stories of people receiving sexualized videos being sent to them by colleagues over Instagram, unwanted requests for dates being made through WhatsApp. And it's not only um, conduct between colleagues that's captured by this positive duty, it's third parties as well. So another story I heard of recently was a receptionist working in a doctor's surgery One of the patients uh, found her on Facebook and was inundating her with inappropriate sexualized messages. Now, that doctor's surgery, they need to be taking proactive measures under this positive duty to eliminate sexual harassment by third parties, such as patients against their workers. Wow. Okay. I have a couple of questions here. So the first one would be around, say, on platforms, say like LinkedIn, and we see this happens a bit and a mm. lot of people have spoken up about it and shared the screenshots where, where people you know, engage in 
sexual harassment through LinkedIn, they don't necessarily know the person. They may not work in the same industry or even the same employer or the same area. What happens there? Does Who has a responsibility for that individual if, you know, say they, they are employed somewhere? So employers need to be casting a very wide net when they're looking at risk in their workplace and understand that risk extends beyond the physical workplace to the online work environment. So you need to be educating your workforce that they need to be behaving appropriately in online spaces. And this includes LinkedIn as well. So if you have an employee under your company name that's inappropriately using LinkedIn, like a dating site, you do have a responsibility to take action. Yes. Okay. So I guess my final question there would be about um, when you say, when you talk about a rise in this tech facilitated sexual harassment, and I think about how it is pretty stupid from the perpetrator's point of view to do that, right? Like it's in writing then, it's for everyone to see. And it suggests to me a, like a massive lack of education there. So that there's a lot, that it looks like there could be some low-hanging fruit there in terms of the education as a start. Is that right? Mm. I think so. I, I think that's absolutely right. What we know is that there is still a, a low level of understanding of what sexual harassment is uh, in the Australian Human Rights Commission's National Survey on Sexual Harassment. They found that 28% of people who originally said that they didn't experience sexual harassment on the basis of the legal definition, went on to report experiencing one of the sexual harassment behaviours when they were spelt out. And the other thing to note is the positive duty isn't just about sexual harassment. It's about sex Mm. discrimination, sex-based harassment and hostile work environments on the basis of sex. And I think when people think about sexual harassment, they think of the more sinister behaviour, the Mm. um, inappropriate physical touching, the the sexual assaults, whereas what we see in the workplace is more of that lower level, that everyday sexism, that misogynistic banter, which is so insidious because it creates that permissive environment for more serious conduct to occur. So that education piece needs to be around the everyday sexism. Mm, Yes, absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to me. It's a really big and important day. And I mean, thank you for all your work in getting us to this point as well. It's such a a positive development, I think, in terms of what happens next and where we go in trying to eliminate sex-based discrimination and harassment for good. Thank you, Angela. I am a big admirer of the work you do at Women's Agenda, so it's truly a privilege to be here today. Thank you. We'll talk again very soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Prava. I was going to ask for final thoughts to you, Liv, but I'll share my final thought. And it's just that Prava is so incredible and impressive and Uh, She's just somebody who's been quietly leading on all this work in different ways, you know, at the Human Rights Commission, in terms of children in detention, in terms of her various reviews. And I just, I I felt so privileged to have that opportunity to chat with her yesterday. And I, I did say this to her, I was like, oh, I just, I can't believe we haven't actually interviewed her previously and um, I hope we'll hear a lot more from her but just a really impressive person in in terms of her career and her impact and also obviously everything that she could share on um, those positive duty changes that came into force yesterday. Any final thoughts from you, Liv? Yeah, my final thought just on that, at the end of our at the end of the conversation you had with Prabo, she mentioned about the positive duty changes, how it may or may not affect 
women from minority groups, Black Mm. women, Indigenous women, culturally and linguistically diverse women as well. And so I'll be chatting to Prava later and writing a piece about that topic, which actually doesn't have a lot of research or a lot of people thinking about it either. Mm. So that's my final thought. I'm looking forward to chatting to Prava more on that topic and uh, learning more about that. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you, Liv. Thank you for co-hosting for the first time. <laughs> and so we'll have you many times again. So and it's, it's great to get your perspective, um, which, you know, it does differ to Tyler and I. So it's really good to have you and have you in our team. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> and that is it for us on The Crux, the Women's Agenda Weekly podcast. A reminder, you can subscribe to our lunchtime daily newsletter and check out everything that we discussed in some shape or form on our website also. A few reminders that if you are concerned about your behaviour or someone using violence, please seek help. There's the Men's Referral Service on 1300 766 491. If you or someone you know is in need of help due to sexual assault or family and domestic violence, contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. Thank you for listening.